Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 273 of the podcast for January 25th, 2017. Joining me today is David Veach. He's the author of the new book, Leader Sites, Creating Great Leaders Who Create Great Workplaces. David is a senior lecturer in the Department of Management Sciences at Ohio State University and their Fisher College of Business, teaching in the MBOE program, the Masters of Business and Operational Excellence. He was previously a lecturer in the College of Engineering at the University of Kentucky. He joined the university after retiring from the U.S. Army in 2001. In this episode, we talk about uh, his book. Uh, we also talk about his uh, original book called The C4 Process, for Vital Steps to Better Work. We're going to talk about how his background and career in the Army influenced his views on lean and leadership, uh, the concept of self-efficacy, and, and a lot more. So I hope you enjoy the episode. You can go to leanblog.org slash 273 to find links uh, to David's bio, to his books. And if you'd like to read uh, a PDF summary um, of the podcast episode. And uh, for all past podcasts and to subscribe, please go to leancast.org. David, hi. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Now, we're talking to you. Are you you're in the Columbus area, or how, how close to Ohio State do you live? I live uh, about 30 minutes north of Columbus in a little town called Galena, out in the country. Galena, Ohio. Sort of. It's growing so fast, it's not going to be country for very long, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm glad we could uh, talk today and um, kind of talk about your your new book, Leader Sites, and, and some of your background and in your work. So uh, why don't you give people you know the introduction about yourself, your career, a little bit about your background, and, and maybe you know as you tell that story, I think it's always interesting to find out how did you first get introduced to Lean and the Toyota production system? Okay, well... Um... My my first foray into lean was uh, when the Army sent me to grad school. So I spent 20 years in the Army, and, and half of that was in the acquisition business. Um, they sent me to uh, Clemson University. I got a Master of Science in Industrial Management uh, way back in 91 and 92. And I had a professor there who mentioned lean and the, you know the machine that changed the world had just been published. Uh, but he was talking about it as if it were some theoretical little game that <laughs> professors can play with. And I start looking at this stuff and I was like, man, that makes perfect sense. Why aren't we doing this? Uh, and so that kind of piqued my interest enough to get me started to think about it. And after I graduated, uh, they sent me into a buying command. So I bought missile systems from Hughes and Raytheon and Lockheed Barton and Boeing. Uh, did that for a few years at Missile Command and I, I built some relationships with some of these defense contractors who were actually applying lean thinking uh, to their processes. Um, and I remember distinctly that uh, Hughes in Georgia invited me to come down after they had done one of their big Kaizen events, and they had uh, essentially rearranged everything in the shop floor, moved all the management offices out where they were open. It was, a, it was pretty cool to see that people were actually doing this. Um, so again, I wanted to learn more. Then I went to uh, I went to Lockheed Martin, uh, Vought Systems out in Texas, uh, and I was the uh, Defense Contract Management Command's operations officer there. 
So I was kind of overseeing the government side of a dozen or so different types of missile development programs and production programs. And they were, they were doing what they could as well. Um, so I got to, I got to see them do a version of a Kaizen event, got to see what worked and what didn't really. And I was still really trying to learn and trying to figure all this stuff out. Um, finally, my last job in the army was at uh, the defense acquisition university at Wright Patterson. And I get there and in the production quality and manufacturing career field for the government service, uh, they didn't, nobody was talking about lean. So I mentioned it to my boss and, um, my, my partner who was teaching with, who was a retired Naval officer. Uh, and we decided that we needed to build this lean curriculum in. Uh, and so I, I got into instructional design and I, uh, really dug through the original founding kinds of books and things like that. I struck up a partnership with the guys at the University of Kentucky um, who had a partnership with Toyota, and I spent a lot of time in the Toyota plant uh, just watching what was going on. I was lucky that I didn't just have to take the little trolley tour. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so over, over the course of a year, year and a half, we had put together this pretty comprehensive lean curriculum, and I worked up a new kind of system-level simulation that I'm still using. Um, and it was a, it was a pretty cool experience. And, and we took that to the uh, Defense Systems Management College as well, where there's there were different levels of qualification for these government workers. And uh, I was kind of focused on the lower two levels, and that the Defense Systems Management College focused on the higher levels, and they adopted a bunch of our stuff as well. So it was a great learning journey. And then when I retired, the guys at the University of Kentucky hired me. They mm-hmm. picked me up, and uh, so I worked at the University of Kentucky for about five years. And then my colleagues and I were kind of we were frustrated that we were teaching a lot, but we weren't really seeing the, our clients get these great results. And we all concluded that they needed some hand-holding or butt-kicking, whatever you want to do. And so we, we set up a, a consulting firm and ended up leaving the university. Uh, the firm was called ILS. Uh, they're still very active. Um, and we consulted for years and still doing that. Um, but I, I've always viewed myself as a, as a teacher who consults rather than a consultant <laughs> who happens to teach a little bit. Mm-hmm. And with ILS, I found I wasn't teaching as much as I really wanted to. And uh, so I'd had a relationship with Ohio State uh, going back for years when they had come to, uh, they, they came to our program at the University of Kentucky to kind of benchmark as they were putting together the program I'm working in now, which is the MBOE program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I maintained contact with him kind of loosely. I did a couple of guest spots teaching with him, and then finally he kind of made me an offer I couldn't refuse kind of thing. So I came up here to teach. Um, I still have uh, the, the teaching contract uh, keeps me on campus in the master's program. Um, I have lots of consulting time and lots of learning time, so I'm doing as much as I can right now. So uh, it's been it's been a journey. I've uh, yeah. done a lot of cool things, seen a lot of cool things, uh, learned more than more than you can imagine probably forgotten way too much of it too so yeah well um and, and for people who want to learn more about the mboe program uh you know it's a, a great program um you know people can can google ohio state mboe um if you want to go back and listen to episode 121 uh from about five years ago i did uh, an interview with 
uh, one of the staff members there, Mrinalini Gadkari, um, about MBOE uh, for healthcare and MBOE in general. Um, so people can find that leanblog.org slash one, two, one. One thing I was going to ask uh, what you said a couple of minutes ago, uh, what, what is a systems level simulation? What, how does that work? Well, I've got to, I went through several different simulations while I was trying to learn all this stuff. And they're all pretty good at showing what happens in one location uh, when you've got everything that you need. And it's it's really not too hard to create a little flow when you've got everything that you need. Um, so what I did is, is I kind of built it based on the way that the military acquires defense systems. Um, it's you know I call it the strike fighter after the F-35 strike fighter. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, industry teams come together to build these aircraft systems. So companies that are normally fierce competitors actually have to collaborate to succeed on these high-dollar government pro- projects. Um, so I've got four separate contractors, and each one brings a particular competency to the table. Uh, that means, and it's a Lego base, so we're assembling a Lego airplane, um, but the lessons that I pull out of it are way more than just assembly. So each team provides certain parts, and everybody has to buy certain parts from every other team. So there's a whole lot of supply chain, material handling, uh, system-level integration. I mean, if they don't make the whole system work together, if we optimize for one table to do really well, they can do really well, but everybody else flops. So the overall objective is to make 15 of these aircraft systems in 15 minutes. And if they don't build a system that allows them to keep working at that tack rate of one minute, uh, then then the system collapses. And it's mm-hmm. obvious where those failures are, where those problems are, and they can problem solve and in the next round um, do better. Well, I was just curious about that. So thank you for... Yeah, the explanation there. Um, before we talk about the book, you know, I was curious, um, maybe if you could share some other reflections about how your career in the Army, you know, has influenced your um, understanding of or approach to lean thinking. You know, I've, I've never served in the military myself. I've never worked with the military, but I, I know um, some really good lean thinkers who came out of either Army medicine or um, I've, I talked to uh, Sam McPherson in episode 235, who um had been uh, in in the army and the military. What what are your thoughts around um, you know how how did that help you with this as opposed to somebody um, being out in industry? Were there kind of you know things that were more intuitive or, or compatible with the army approach? Things that made it more challenging. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know they never really called out anything like lean in my career in the military. When I started off, I was in the infantry. So uh, I was an officer. I was a platoon leader, um, a support platoon leader, a company commander, and headquarters company commander. Um, and in each case, what we always focused on, particularly when we were training for combat missions, uh, is, is you have to make do with what you have. You can't expect somebody to give you pretty much anything that you want. Uh, a lot of times what you have doesn't really work very well for what you need it to do. So you have to modify the processes with which you're using this equipment and these people and these material, everything associated with it. There's, you, you have to be able to get the most out of the current set of resources that you have without the expectation of having a whole bunch of stuff coming. 
Um, and that kind of was ingrained in me from the start. Uh, when I started learning about lean, and I, I told you about that professor and how he was all theoretically trying to connect dots, and I was like, no, 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 that is exactly what I've been trying to do through my military career is to, to, to make things flow as quickly as possible so we can get in, move fast, strike hard, finish rapidly, the whole work. So it all, it all kind of resonated with me. Um, the real thing, though, that I got out of the Army was uh, – uh, was huge lessons in leadership. And, mm -hmm. You know, at a very at a very young age, uh, I was given responsibility for lots and lots of stuff, and uh, I was. Uh, I wouldn't admit it at the time, but it was completely overwhelming to be that young and be responsible mm -hmm. for the lives of 366 men in a, a military unit. It's uh, so it's pretty humbling, uh, but. Uh, I, we had all different kinds of leaders, um, some that were very, very bad, uh, and many that were very, very good. As a matter of fact, the, the, I would say the, the best leader, the one who most exemplifies the leadership that I talk about in this new book, um, was uh, the Brigade S3, who's the operations officer for the 1st Brigade of the 8th Infantry Division in there. I worked for him uh, for about 15 months. And for the first year, God, I hated working for this guy. I mean, he was meticulous, um, and he would he would ask me to write up a training plan. I'd send it over to him, and he would just bring it back dripping with red ink. But he would sit down, and he would tell me everything that I'd, I'd misunderstood or miscommunicated or ways that things weren't real. And then he would say, okay, now give it another shot. Hmm. And, you know, it was very frustrating at the time. I was working long hours and everything else. But I didn't realize how much I was learning and how it wasn't just, you know, you're screwed up, I'm going to do this, I'm going to fix this and send it down to the boss. And so when I finished this product, um, either brigade uh, training plans for quarters or annuals, we would make pretty significant plans for these guys as I was the brigade training officer. Um, you know, when the, when the brigade commander comes down, the big boss comes down, he pokes his head in, he says, hey, it was a great job on that last thing you did. I was like, well, I figured he was being polite, but uh, I found out from other people that uh, my boss, the one who was making all my papers bleed, uh, was presenting them to him as if they were like first drafts of mine. And uh, so he didn't take any credit for mm -hmm. anything that, that he did. Uh, and that kind of, that has stuck with me since then. Um, I've also had leaders who, who wouldn't make a decision, even when a decision was absolutely critical. I've had others who would just get mad instead of making decisions. And all of these types of, of leadership behaviors kind of have been working on me for years. And then uh, when I, I got through the master's program, really without talking about a whole lot of leadership, we had like one organizational behavior class and a whole lot of, it was more of a technical degree than a management degree. So, uh, I didn't really get a chance to do more in-depth theoretical kinds of studies until I got to the University of Kentucky, and I got into a Ph.D. program. And um, By virtue of some lessons I had learned from a guy named Arlie Hall, who was teaching at the University of Kentucky, um, I learned pretty quickly that, that a lean system ultimately is a, is a learning system. And right. if we can figure out how people learn and figure out how to design systems that allow people to learn in these quicker learning loops, um, 
then then we can create organizations that are really self-sustaining. And I thought that was very, very critical and insightful. So I started studying educational psychology. Uh, and I, I took a bunch of courses, both at the, at the University of Kentucky, then uh, with Capella University. But ultimately, I didn't get a chance to finish it. We got busy with the consulting business, mm-hmm. and I had a, a couple of very wise, gray-haired old men, uh, one with a Ph.D. and one without a Ph.D., who kind of said, based on what you want to do with your career, it's it's probably not going to do what you think it's going to do. Getting um, completed so a Ph.D., <laughs> you mean? That's right. Yeah. yeah so so I, I put that on hold, but uh, I really enjoyed the learning. And, and some of the things that I learned from that uh, are rolled into this book. And some of the things are pretty radical, and I talk to people about doing these things, and they kind of give me funny looks. Um, but, uh, if, uh, if they're uh, brave enough to chance, uh, an experiment with some of these things, mm-hmm. I think they'll find that, that, uh, the theoretical foundation on which these recommendations are being made, I think they have a high likelihood of success. A lot of the stuff yep. I talk about is really hard to do because I talk about personal behavior and, you know, you've got to change what you do. As an individual, and nobody really wants to hear that either. It's all those other bozos <laughs> right. who need change, right? Well, and, and people point fingers in all sorts of different directions. Uh, we point fingers oh, absolutely. up at our leadership. Leadership points fingers down at at the, the frontline employees. One department points fingers at those bozos, quote-unquote, in another department. <laughs> yeah, you're right. It's 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 tough. But yeah, I think like you're saying, you know, lean is not – a bunch of theory. Uh, it's a very practical endeavor, and yeah, it sounds like that's that's perspective you're able to bring to the students. You know, the MBOE program. Uh, you know, so, uh, yeah. I mean, it's good to have uh, theory. You know, Dr. Deming always said you have to have theory uh, behind something. But uh, yeah, this is a practical matter. This is all very real, right? Well, I've been able to uh, to tie uh, very practical lean tools to a lot of these. Um, psychology theories and I've been pretty happy in it I mean that was the, the main focus of that the first book that I wrote was a, a problem-solving book um, I'd seen some people who were struggling with uh, PDCA or I guess we're calling it a3 thinking most of the time now um, people just like couldn't get their heads around well what is the first thing you do when, when you're doing the P part and I'm like all right well maybe there's a way to simplify this a little bit and so I took some of that um, theoretical educational psychology learning said if we kind of rearrange the way we talk about pdca uh and focus first on on the problem uh, and understand that you don't do anything else until you really know what the problem is right uh then you can find out what's causing that after you've scoped it properly then you can figure out what kind of countermeasures you have and, um so i was we were doing some work with uh, some friends at rolls royce and they were kicking around this concern, cause, and countermeasure kind of real, um, it's those quick hits kind of problem-solving things. And so I kind of a- adopted that, added a fourth element of concern to it. Uh, and because, you know, I'm an Army guy, I like things that blow up, I, I called it the C4 process. <laughs> so Yeah, not the explosive, but a problem-solving process. <laughs> so that yeah. was, yeah, the first book, the C4 process and and let, let's talk about the new the new book leader sites um what what led to you know writing a book is always you know such a big uh time investment and, and commitment uh what you know what was the story of you know that led you to to actually writing and, and completing the book 
Well, I had some ideas, particularly around um, uh, individuals' levels of competence and things. And um, when I, I I put together a presentation, and it was at the uh, um, the Lean HR Summit, uh, I think back in twenty down in San Antonio. I think you were there. Um, so I, I pitched this, uh, talking about self-efficacy, and uh, Mike Sinachi from Productivity Press was there, mm-hmm. and he said, you know, I go to all these things, and nobody nobody has talked about that mm-hmm. in Lean. And he said, uh, so we talked about what it might take to write a book about that, and so that, that, that was kind of the seed. Now, in contrast, just for a little comparison, okay, I went to a conference just uh, withhold your judgment on this. <laughs> the, okay. uh, the Association for Challenge Course Technology, the ACCT. Mm. Okay. I to, they're, they're the guys who build those high ropes courses and the things where you go swinging through the, the zip lines and all that stuff, right? Yeah. Um, I went to their conference, and it had about 180 people there. Uh, they had a full schedule of presentations and things. And, you know, they do a lot of work with at-risk children and things like that. There were eight separate presentations that focused on Mm self-efficacy. And then I'll look at the conferences that we do within Lean. It's like, nobody's talking about this stuff. And it's the same thing for a guy who's working in an office or in a hospital or in a factory where he thinks or she thinks, I have no control over what's going on. They wind me up and tell me what to do every day, and it's the same crap every day, day in and day out. I don't have any control over it. Uh, and what they're teaching these kids through the, the challenge course thing is you do have control over it. You have control and gain more of that control by demonstrating a level of mastery, so proving that you know what you're talking about, that you can do this. And that kind of started me thinking, it's like, well, you know, what is the true purpose of standardized work? And do we use standardized work just to kind of document what we're supposed to do? Or do we use standard work to truly build mastery in our workforce? Because that's the first element that builds their confidence, and it's the first element that also leads to, to intrinsic motivation, which is the kind of motivation that lasts because people enjoy what they're doing. Yeah. So I've tied all this stuff in with, with uh, some job satisfaction studies and things like that, and, and I've found some great consistencies for the lean tools, and I've pulled all those together and um it took me forever but i finally got this book done and <laughs> sent the manuscript off last july so how so it's only mean, three years later <laughs> yeah it's uh, a book is a journey right yes um so I'd, li- I'd like to hear a little bit more about this idea of self-efficacy and you know how do you how do you find a balance when we would talk about um you know systems and, and so much of performance um in an organization is determined by the system. I guess, you know, that's that's not meant to make people feel helpless, but yet, you know, I mean, if you have good people in in a broken system, we know that can lead to bad results. I mean, where, where's the balance here of, of not being too fatalistic of, well, I'm in a bad system, what can I do versus maybe not being able to overcome every bad system? What, what, what do you think about that? Well, I... I think there are a lot of things that, that drive whether somebody's going to be satisfied with what they do at work. And I want to make sure that we, we point out that there's a lot of confusion about the, the outcome of a satisfied employee. A lot of people think 
happy worker is a productive worker, and the science just doesn't bear that out. As a matter of fact, anecdotally, you and I all know people who come to work every day and they love it. Uh, everybody loves them. They get along with everything. They know everything that's going on, but when you ask them to, to do a particular task, they never seem to get around to doing a task. Mm-hmm. So they're very satisfied, but they're not productive at all. And then on the other hand, there are folks who act like they hate being there, <laughs> but if it's a critical project and you've got to have it done, you know that they're the only one that you can count on to get it done. So they're highly productive, just they hate every minute of it, it seems mm-hmm. like. So... I figured there's a balance with satisfaction in there, and, but what I really wanted to do is, is I kind of point out that if we build that proper lean system, uh, it's going to get the productivity that we need, okay, because it's a linked, synchronized, well-balanced, well-designed system that works based on flow, that regulates that flow with an effective pull system, and we only do the things that we need to do, and we design that system, and that gets our productivity. Uh, so why then should we focus on satisfaction? Uh, because the things we do get from a satisfied employee that we don't necessarily get from a satis- or a dissatisfied employee are things like loyalty, uh, things like um, presence. They turn up to work, more likely to turn up. Uh, they stick around longer. But the biggest thing is they are more willing to share a problem with you, mm-hmm. understanding that they're surfacing a problem so that the problem can be solved or they're willing to share an idea with you, much more likely to share an idea uh, than somebody who's dissatisfied. So we've got lean tools to build those key elements that contribute to satisfaction as well. Um, Just the fact that we say uh, we're going to design work and we're going to build standardized work, and we want everybody who does this work to be an expert at this work because it's not like anybody off the street. We can't hire somebody in, give them five minutes of training, and expect them to be able to to do the work we're doing. The work is too important now. The work is enriched. Uh, It's got a lot of content. It's got some degree of wholeness so people can see what they're doing. They've got some connection with the customer now. So that standardized work is designed to build that mastery, which is designed to make people feel like the work that they're doing is significant which is one of the key elements of meaningfulness, which drives satisfaction more than anything else. Mm-hmm. So with that significance and variety, a variety of different things to do, and if you look at Toyota's model, they at Kentucky they rotate through four different jobs every day. Every two hours they rotate and do a different job. And they'll tell you that it's for ergonomic reasons and personal safety and uh, this and everything else, but but really it's just it makes it makes it more interesting. Um, the other thing is identity. Um, so these are three key elements in meaningfulness. It's the significance, variety of work, and identity. And identity means we, we feel some kind of tangible connection with the people we're working with. And of course, that small team structure that Toyota has promoted forever uh, really gives you a, a bonding experience with a group of folks. So it's not like you're coming to work because the company says you're coming to work. It's not like you're coming to work just to get the paycheck. You're coming to work because you don't want to let your team down. Right. So it's um, and and all these are, are are flowing from lean principles and lean tools. Right. And 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 there's a difference between satisfaction, happiness, and engagement. Right. I mean those those words. You might want both in the workplace, as, as you're saying, but um, they're they're not exactly the same concept. Right. Exactly. And we focus on engagement. I write a lot about engagement in there. It's uh, it is a journey to get somebody truly engaged. Um, 
I, I think that you'll never get an engaged employee who's also dissatisfied. Mm-hmm. But just because somebody's satisfied at work does not necessarily mean they're going to be engaged. They could be very excited, and they could they could be um, very much wanting to contribute. Um, but if they haven't made that jump to self determination, mm-hmm. or if the company hasn't put a system in place that allows them to make that jump to self determination, then they're never fully going to be engaged. So let's um, there's there's three categories. You know, kind of taking a, a dive into other parts of the book here. You know, in the term leader sites. You know, can you talk about that term and and the three categories that that go into that? Uh, yeah, it's uh, again. I'll, I'll ask you to withhold judgment for a minute. Okay. What I started thinking about was uh, insight. Um, how do we share insight? And my first journey down this was was um, lean site, and so I have uh, my Twitter handle is is lean sites for the lean part of the stuff that I do. Um, and I started thinking about you know it's it's really critical we have insights for leaders as well. And I started working on this leader sites, and I I got the domain name and I I did what I could to protect it. And then I looked at the dictionary and I found out that that insight doesn't have a plural <laughs> really somebody's I think we hear that butchered a lot oh there's a lot of good insights in that book no yeah, yeah there aren't any insights there's only insight uh, huh. so that was a lesson that I learned but I'd already invested in all this other stuff and it, I think it works okay but uh, sure uh, I, I also talk about vision in this and so I, I talk about seeing sites and things like that so it, it kind of flows to that but well, sure. we're kind of boiled down to what are the key things that, that bring the leader needs to bring to work, uh, that a leader really needs to be able to, to do and to act on. And as I started organizing all these thoughts and everything, it really came down to three critical things. And, and it's, it's love, learn, and let go. And I've been talking about love in the workplace for a while. And a lot of people, you know, kind of give you wow. the, Anky eye or whatever you want to call it, but we can't talk about love as a workplace. And uh, we have this kind of misconception that that love is some kind of smushy emotion, yeah, or or uh, an inappropriate in fact, romantic thing uh, in the workplace. But, exactly, yeah. but but love is actually a decision. Um, love is a, a decision that we make. Uh, it is very much um, an option mm-hmm. for us. Uh, even in terms of, of parents and children and parents and, and, and husbands and wives and things like that, we choose to love somebody. Yeah. And with that decision, with that decision comes just a flood of emotion, as anyone who is in a relationship knows, right? So I can still love my wife and just be madder than hell at her mm-hmm. uh, at the same time, right? Uh, but it's really more of the the love we have for our, our kids that kind of motivated the further thinking of this, because uh, uh, when we think about the things that we want to do for our kids, um, we want to challenge them to do things, to try things that they've never done before. We want to challenge them to continue to get better. And we want to know the, enough about them uh, to know what is an appropriate challenge and what isn't. So I don't want, uh, I don't want a child who is not particularly athletic um, to get into this really hardcore athletic regime. So 
I, as the parent, knowing what I know about my child, I'm going to set an appropriate challenge for them. Hmm. And I got to thinking about challenge, and that's one of the most important things we need to do as leaders. How, how do we challenge our workforce? And again, that has to be tempered by our relationship with the workforce. We have to know what our people are capable of, and then we have to know them on a level that we know what's going to flip their switches, so to speak. I need to know if I talk about uh, health care that I'm going to I'm going to get your ears to perk up, and you're going to all right, yeah, let's let's have this conversation. Um, so I need to know enough about my people so that I can tailor that challenge to say, you know, if we could do this particular task maybe four seconds faster or maybe five minutes faster, or if we could do this without having to go all the way down the hallway to get that done, uh, do you think you could figure that out? And, and so that challenge becomes a, a huge piece of the way that we as leaders convey love in the workplace. Sounds kind of weird, but that, that's, that's how we do it. Um, the prerequisite for that, though, is that I've got to acknowledge that I am in the, the power position, uh, and in order for me to establish that relationship and get to know those people the way they are, I've got to place the needs they have for their work life uh, above the needs I have mm-hmm. in the workplace, and that lets me set aside my ego, and that lets me really communicate and reach out and try to understand who these people are and, and what they want to be able to do with their lives. So um, loving behaviors I've listed as first, it's this challenge, but I don't just want to challenge somebody and say, all right, there's the challenge, go figure it out. I want to challenge them and then I want to find a way for them to overcome the challenge. So I want to provide the support that they need uh, to build a process that is repeatable enough to reach that level of expertise where they can uh, achieve that challenge. Okay, and, and again, that's building blocks toward things like standardized work. So I've got a challenge. I've got a support system. I've got to correct their behavior because if they don't do it right, I've got to get them back on track because if, if we fall into this mode of where anybody can do the job any way they want to, um, I don't know what to do to make everybody better. Right. So I've got to say this is the way we do the job. And, and again, that's one of the key purposes of standardized work. So this is the way we do the job. Uh, and as you repeat this, your skills are going to improve. Um, you're going to get better at it. You're going to get faster. You're going to do it with less waste. You're going to do it with better motion. The whole works. So this correction piece is something that leaders really have to have the courage to stand up and do. Um, it's it's the iron fist in the velvet glove kind of thing. I mean, we've got to insist that, that we follow the standards. Uh, and then the final thing is, is once you've corrected somebody and they feel pretty sideways, uh, then it's our job to encourage them. And it's not just to encourage them to keep on going to get back to the standard, but it's the, the courage, encourage them to find that new standard for themselves and then turn that responsibility over to that team of people so that they can then challenge themselves, support themselves, correct themselves, and continue to encourage themselves. And all these are kind of rolled up in one little four-letter word called love. Um, now, the, other, the next one... Yeah, no, I was ahead. just going to say first, you know, on, on the, the word love, I, I, I never heard that word in the workplace until I got into healthcare. And that's a different yeah. environment, you know, from manufacturing, you know, coming into healthcare. It's a caring, 
environment. Um, you know, there, there's some, you know, I blogged about this years ago, a hospital in the Netherlands that instead of calling their program lean healthcare or performance improvement or operational, whatever, um, you know, and I don't know if a program needs a name, but the name they gave for their improvement engagement program was loving care. And I, I thought mm. that was a great way of summing up uh, what we're trying, what people are trying to do in healthcare. It's not cold, ruthlessly efficient care. It can be, yeah. it can be more <laughs> loving and freeing up time. Um, you know, efficiency can lead to more time uh, for for a more loving style of care. So I'm I'm I, I I don't judge about that word. I've gotten comfortable, I guess, with that word over time. Well, and I, I think more of us need to get comfortable. Um... If you watch, you know, in the Army, I had the, the privilege to, uh, to work with a great many very good leaders. And when those leaders leave to take a new position, maybe with higher authority or maybe they retired, the thing that they all speak about was, was how much they loved working with the people, the soldiers that they had. Uh, and they, they honestly spoke about love when they were leaving. Um, Often it didn't feel much like it when they were leaders, but uh, you can tell a, a leader who's really engaged with his or her workforce um, really feels a huge heartbreak to leave. So there's very much love is there. Uh, we just want to call it out and say what it is because I think we've got an obligation to, to love our people. Mm-hmm. Um that also allows us then to make the next decision and uh, to have the next leader site, and that's learning. Uh, without that love, I'm going to think that I, I know everything, so there's no reason for me to spend any time with you because you can't teach me anything. Uh, you just tell, I'll just tell you what to do, and you go and do that. So this loving kind of leads to you being able to make the decision that every day I come in is a day that I can learn. And the people that I learn from are the folks who are doing the things in the organization because they have more contact with more things than I'll ever get a chance to. So there's always something I can learn from somebody else. So uh, I've uh, spent a little time trying to figure out what kinds of, of tools that we have that allow us to learn and allow us to learn more quickly. And that kind of settled on problem solving pretty quickly. Uh, and if you if you go back to some of the, the basic kinds of psychological principles for human learning, uh, there's a Bloom's taxonomy tells us there are six different levels of learning in a human being's cognitive domain. So in their brain, they got to go through six stages to get to that penultimate level of learning. And it goes from just broke remembering and being able to regurgitate what you say all the way up through analysis, synthesis, and evaluation of a process or of a result. And so if we can build in those higher levels of learning into the problem-solving work that we do at work, then we're heightening our chances of speeding those learning loops. And when we can speed those learning loops, that actually makes us much more nimble and much more competitive as the market is constantly changing, how the world is constantly changing. And so if we can sense, understand what's happening, diagnose causes, and come up with creative solutions, test a couple of solutions, and implement the one that's going to give us the best shot very quickly, 
then there's nothing that's going to stop that kind of organization. So um, the learning piece really focuses on developing robust problem-solving systems that teach people how to do the analysis, creation, and evaluation. And there's a lot of suggestion systems and a lot of programs out there that, that are really pretty good about root cause analysis. So we do analysis pretty well. Uh, there's a whole lot of them that uh, emphasize the need to come up with these multiple countermeasures. Uh, and we always record results, but we don't really, I don't think we do the evaluation, the kind of uh, robust approach that I think will help going forward. And even at the, the those easy, just do it kind of ideas, those are great little tools to use for us as leaders to teach somebody how to go through that analysis, synthesis, and evaluation even on a very small problem very quickly. And again, the more practice you get, the more repetition you get, the better you tend to be. Right. So that, that practical, rigorous problem solving is really a practical, rigorous learning system. Uh, and so I, I kind of built that up around the learning piece. And then the third one is, uh, is letting go. And one of the things that uh, you pick up on very quickly is as a leader, you have a broad range of responsibility, and in most organizations, um, most organizations are so complex, there's no way that you can really control everything, and when you try, you come off to your entire workforce as, as some kind of micromanager who is is in the weeds too much, uh, and you don't really gain any control anyway because it's impossible to get there. So you're frustrated because you can't control the things that you need. Your folks are frustrated because you won't let them do anything because you're trying to control everything. And so the workplace just gets darker and darker. And so if we don't learn as leaders to build a system that is going to allow us to let go, um, then we're not going to be able to promote a, a healthy uh, workplace that contributes to the economy and drives our society to a better place. Right. So that, that letting go piece is it's terrifying because you know I'm, I'm a control freak too and I'll admit that. Um, so I, I, on this we got to emphasize that I'm not asking you just to trust blindly and turn loose of everything and and you right. know go play golf when everybody's working. <laughs> I'm asking you to build a system that builds control into the work, and that you can do that and you can you can assess the level of performance of that system by walking through that system and seeing everything. And that just kind of screams visual management systems. Right. And I've seen a variety of those visual management systems, but the, the intent of the visual management system is to create that learning system that allows you to assess, uh, rapidly assess, rapidly diagnose, rapidly analyze, and, and rapidly solve uh, all the problems that are going on. So it's um, lots of lots of opportunities to kind of synthesize those. So those are the three big ones. But in the in the leadership model that I I put together, uh, I added a fourth one um, because you know that loving piece is kind of based on on principles of servant leadership. And there's some wonderful books on servant leadership, right. uh, and that tied to the authenticity movement and everything like that. But uh, you get the feeling by reading a lot of this stuff that that um, the servant leadership really kind of makes you suppress yourself or something mm -hmm. that 
they're not really assertive or, or things like that. And uh, so, if you don't if you don't get noticed, nobody gives you a chance to be a servant leader. If they don't think you're capable and competent, then nobody's going to give you a chance to to be a true servant leader. Uh, so there's not just that sacrificial piece that goes with the servant leadership. It's it's accelerated by that learning piece. And in the book, I, I tie this back to uh, uh, Jim Collins's level five leadership that he discusses in, in uh, Good to Great. Um, and he says, uh, uh, these guys are, are people of great humility, great personal humility, um, and an iron will and a relentless focus on succession, which I read as uh, you are responsible for developing the future generations for the organization. So right. you've got to keep people development role which, again, is one of those cornerstones of a, of a lean system. Um, so we get love with servant leadership. We get learning with that level five leadership. Uh, the Letting Go is more, I found this little book um, by Bill LaRoe called uh, Office Kaizen. Yeah. And yeah, a great little read. He's, a, he's an educational psychologist, so I kind of clicked with me. And in that, I'm flipping through there, and he, he identifies this type of leader as, a particular type of leader is a short interval leadership. And it's where uh, you, you have a maximum positive experience with every short interval of contact with the people that you make while you're doing a gimbal walk. And so I thought that was really pretty cool. And if you build this system that requires you to go to the gimba and go to make contact with people to understand what's really going on, uh, that requires you to let go, to let everybody operate, while you're just kind of monitoring and providing resources in response to problems, um, then, then we get a, a much better, uh, a much better type of organization that, that people are able to take that self-determination step again, from that excitement to the engagement level, uh-huh. because if you don't ever turn loose, they're never going to be engaged. Um, but that fourth one, the fourth one is connecting. Um, so I want you to, I want you to be confident, uh, I want you to be capable. I want you to be outgoing as a leader. And I want you to tell the world about the great things that your folks are doing. Yeah. And I want you to convince the world that this is the best place to come to work, that this is the best people, uh, this is the best company, this is the best support, this is the best products, this is the best healthcare. Everything about us is best. And I want you to have the confidence and the surety to go out and, and tell people that. So I think that connecting people uh, for the outside world allows you to really put the needs of your inside world people, the needs of them way above your own and to create the right kind of work environment. So, so All right. I don't know. I've kind of bent my brain coming up with that, <laughs> thinking through that. But sure. I hope it makes sense to some people. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, the book certainly elaborates on this and, and goes deeper and you know, there, there's a lot more we could talk about. Maybe we can do a second podcast. Um, episode uh and, and and take a little bit deeper dive dave um david david veach um, uh, has been uh, our guest um the book is leader sites um as we wrap up here in a second david um how, how can people learn more about the book order it connect with you online uh, yeah I'd, uh, I'd love to to have uh, folks connect on linkedin primarily um they can follow me on Twitter, both um, at Lean Sites and at David Veach. 
Um, and you can uh, the book is available for pre-order from from Amazon and from Barnes and Noble online. Um, it, the title again, Leader Sites. The subtitle is Creating Great Leaders Who Create Great Workplaces. Well, good. Well, um, congratulations on on getting the book uh, completed and almost published. And uh, encourage everyone to. Um, check that out, and uh, again, you know the the MBOE program uh, is you know is a great model for uh, an, an approach to um, business education. Uh, encourage people to check that out as well. So, uh, David, thank you so much for uh, taking time with us today. Hey, thanks for having me, Mark. It's been a great time. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.